On April 7, 2016, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance hosted a conversation with Gustavo Flores Macias, Assistant Professor of Government and Director of the Latin American Studies Program at Cornell University. Drawing on insights from the literature on institutional design, Flores Macias' research examines how certain features of taxes, such as allowing for civil society oversight, sunset provisions that make the duration finite, and earmark mechanisms that direct tax revenue for a specific purpose, affect political support behind them. The event, entitled Building Support for Taxation in Developing Countries, Experimental Evidence from Mexico, begins with a presentation of some of Flores Macias' research and is followed by a discussion with the audience. For more information about the Ash Center, visit ash.harvard.edu. Everybody for coming here today, despite the weather and the time in the semester, which is everybody's very busy. So today we are honored to have Gustavo Flores Macias with us. Gustavo is assistant professor of political science at Cornell University, where he also chairs the Center for Latin American Studies. His research focuses on the politics of economic reform and on taxation and state capacity. His work, which is great, and I invite you to read it if you're not familiar with it, has appeared or is forthcoming in leading political science journals. And his book, After Neoliberalism, The Left and Economic Reforms in Latin America, published by Oxford University Press, has appeared in 2012 and has received an award from the Latin American Studies Association. Before joining graduate school, Gustavo had an experience in public policy Gustavo is from Mexico and he served as Director of Public Affairs in Mexico's Consumer Protection Agency, so he's also familiar with the details of policymaking. So today Gustavo will be presenting on when citizens support taxation, doing an experiment in Mexico. Thank you very much for being with us. Thank you. Um, so I think I, I just talk, right? Here, I don't, this is working, right? Okay. Thank you so much for the invitation. Thank you, Candelaria. Thank you, Tarek. I really appreciate the opportunity to present this work. This project is part of a larger research agenda that has to do with an interest in um, the fiscal strengthening of the state. Really, the agenda goes a little bit beyond that, and we can think of it as just as the strengthening of the Latin American state. But I'm in particular interested in, in fiscal issues. And um, the ability to extract resources from the population has been uh, an important component or important challenge for Latin American countries in historically, but especially in, in, in recent years. This paper, um, and I'll show you in a second, what I attempt to do is I try to look into ways to help perhaps governments or policymakers um, extract resources from society. And I know that sounds, you know, that doesn't make me a lot of friends when I say that, you know, I look into ways to get people to pay more taxes. But, but that's a little bit what this is, especially in the context of, of societies where fiscal extraction is fairly, fairly low compared to what we would expect that extraction to be given their level of development. And I'll show you in a second. Um, and, and always, I think it's important to, to keep in mind that extraction might be only part of the equation, that there's a lot of, on the spending side, that is also very important, both in terms of, of waste, but also in terms of how the money is spent. So just uh, a caveat before you start throwing things at me. Um, Basically, what I plan to do today is I'll, I'll, I'll start with the research questions that are driving this, this paper. I'll briefly go over the contributions in my mind, at least, what this paper is contributing. I'll very briefly walk you through uh, some of the literature, at least some of the theoretical framework uh, that I 
took as a point of departure for this that has to do with the connection between public opinion and policy making. And I then um, will discuss some of the hypotheses that I present for this experiment. Uh, these hypotheses are drawn from the literature on institutional design. And um, I, I haven't seen a lot of work applying institutional design to fiscal reforms. Um, but I'll, I'll talk about that as well. And then I'll, I'll tell you a bit about the research design for the experiment. I'll, I'll um, walk you through results. And then I'll talk a little bit about the implications the, uh, of the findings. The three main questions that I have in mind, starting from the most general to, to more specific, what factors drive public support for taxation? Uh, as you'll see, this talk is, is not about compliance, which is one of the big important aspects of taxation, that is, whether people pay the taxes they're supposed to. This talk is more about, or this research is more about the fiscal reforms themselves. In other words, how to plan the tax structure in and of itself and how to get it approved. And then, you know, people may or may not pay those taxes down the road, but at least in thinking how to help um, governments at least approve reforms that may be politically unpalatable to begin with. Uh, the next question is whether these specific features of the design of the tax can help achieve this end. And the last question is whether certain factors that condition the fiscal exchange, that is sort of this, this uh, you know, the, the terms of trade, if you will, between taxpayers and the government, um, whether there are certain features of this fiscal exchange that might condition how the people react to different institutional designs in how the tax is presented. Why I think this is important, most of the research on fiscal reforms has dealt with crises as these big opportunities to shape the tax structure and to get people to pay taxes. And there's this notion that in times of crises, maybe the people will be more likely to do something that they wouldn't do otherwise. Now, the problem with crises is uh, maybe you can generate them yourself. It's not terribly moral or ethical to do that. But in general, we can't just generate crises to change um, the tax uh, structure or to get tax reforms approved. Um, so I'm hoping to shift the emphasis more to specific tools within the policymakers' toolkit to um, help them approve these fix fiscal reforms. As I said, I haven't seen much work on drawing on institutional design for the purposes of taxation. And, and I think this research in particular complements the broad literature on um, compliance that I think is very well established. A lot has been said. There's a lot of experimental work, non-experimental work as well. Uh, but we haven't really looked at this, this step that I would argue comes before compliance, and that is getting people to support their fiscal reforms to begin with. Now, let me tell you a little bit about the theoretical framework that I use as a point of departure here. And it's just this notion that public opinion matters for policymaking. You know, th this is maybe for some, this is pretty straightforward. For others, this is not as straightforward. This, is, this can be even contentious in that um, we can adopt a cynical view, perhaps, and say, well, it's not the public really that matters at the end of the day when you're paying taxes. It's interest groups. It's certain economic elites. It's not the, the average person out there. I want to make the case that, that 
the average person out there matters and that um, public opinion, at least, um, I don't want to argue that it's the main factor that drives policymakers in adopting certain reforms, but I want to make the case that it's certainly something that they take into account and that shapes their behavior in terms of the reforms they might adopt and how they shape these specific reforms. Um, work by Stimson et al., for example, is, is perhaps the most prominent in political science that they call this dynamic representation. And it's, again, this notion that politicians will, they won't adopt the public's perspective necessarily or their constituency's perspective, but at least they will take it into account so that their own position is shaped as a result to some point that allows them to uh, advance their own policy views that they consider worth advancing, but that does not jeopardize their own chances of getting reelected. Um, this, I would argue, happens at all levels. It happens in the legislature. It also happens at the executive level. Legislators face uh, these electoral disincentives to go against their constituencies, even if they think it's the right policy choice. If this is unpopular, there'll be a political cost. And same for executives. Right? They will likely have trouble garnering ex or, or uh, mustering executive majorities if their policies are unpopular. Taxation tends to be fairly unpopular. In the United States, for example, survey after survey after survey, when you ask people whether they think that their levels of taxes are about right or too low or too high, um, about 3% of respondents will say that um, we need more taxation. Um, in, in Latin America, it's not terribly different. Maybe it's a little bit higher, but it's still um, under 10% for most countries. In the case of Mexico, which I'll, I'll show you in a second, um, it's, it's 4%, so it's almost the same as the US. Um, I think one of the main challenges to this notion that public opinion matters, maybe we can think of public opinion, public opinion mattering for policy in general, but the question then is, what about specific spheres of policy? So maybe the environment, maybe people might be more or less influential than taxation, or, or maybe healthcare. Um, I think there's evidence that even for the, in the realm of taxation, um, public opinion matters. And there are, there are examples from all over the world in which governments go out of their way to um, try to measure or to survey the um, you know, sort of citizens and get a sense of what their preferences are on, on tax policy. And then there's evidence that governments in turn use this information to shape these reforms before they are introduced into Congress or even if they've already been introduced, whether they will vote for or against them. Uh, there's some evidence in the U.S., for example, um, uh, you know, Bartels, Butler, Nicholson, some of this evidence experimental, uh, others observational having to do with, um, let's say, the Bush tax cuts. And sometimes, you know, at times, these fiscal reforms will not necessarily be in the best interest of the people, but the people may still support them, and they will be instrumental in getting legislation passed. So it doesn't have to be something that the people understand, and it doesn't have to be something that ultimately actually benefits them. Some people have pointed to, for example, uh, the, the changes in the estate tax in the United States that only affected you know, maybe 2% of the population, mostly the super wealthy, but 
the, the large majority of the, of the people in the United States, just uh, survey after survey, showed that they were against the state tax. Right, so this at least was instrumental, arguably, in passing these tax reforms, Bush tax cuts, same thing. There's some evidence from Latin America, um, from Mexico, from Chile, um, a paper by, by Candelaria and, and Tasha Fairfield also has this, this um, so it has evidence from Chile and other parts of Latin America in this regard. So this is essentially the framework, at least the, part, the point of departure that is the, the theoretical underpinnings of the experiment. Now, I rely on institutional design to derive some hypotheses, and I'll show them to you in a second. But the, the goals in mind, or the, the, um, perhaps the motivation for institutional design is twofold. One has to do with reducing, perhaps, um, or, or let me put it this way, increasing the credibility that the citizens might have with respect to the government and their ability to provide goods and their ability to do what they said they would do with the money. We can think of these as asymmetries in terms of principal, principles and agents. Right? Um, that's one objective. And the other objective that is related is to reduce intertemporal uncertainty. And you know, when, you, when someone collects your taxes, April 15th is coming, for example, uh, you've been paying along the way part of it, and then maybe you pay uh, a little more on April 15th. Uh, but you may not see the benefits of that. Maybe it'll take a year, maybe two years, depending on the public goods that might result from those taxes. Some of them you'll see immediately ongoing, but others you might not. And this disconnect in terms of the, the time when you're paying and the time when you might be receiving some of the benefits is also something that people take into account uh, when considering whether to um, support fiscal reforms. There are these different strategies that the literature and institutional design um, suggests are helpful in addressing these, these two challenges. The, the institutional design literature, by the way, has been applied. You know, we can think in political science, for example, um, work by Sugar and Carey on, on uh, electoral systems, by Leiphardt on constitutions, um, Negretto on, on constitutions as well, and, and dealing with time horizons and credibility issues in in the econ literature, there's all of the choice architecture, sort of behavioral economics literature that also has to do with the way you present choices to people or the way you present the, you, the, the, you know, the choice architecture, the way you construct choices and will affect whether people are more likely to uh, embrace those choices or to support those choices. So that's the intuition behind these. Uh, there are three strategies that I rely on here for our purposes. The first one has to do with reporting or, or diligence requirements. So we can think of, you know, these I think are generally common. They're not terribly esoteric. Um, we can think of, of sunshine laws, sunshine provisions, in which every time there is a, a meeting, you, if it's uh, something that has to do with government, and cer certain states have regulations that these meetings have to be public, for example. Uh, they're trying to address these issues. Another example is automatic policy decisions, um, things that just trigger automatically. So for example, food stamps. Food stamps are uh, tied to a poverty line or they're means tested and it's a poverty line that is indexed and it's automatic whether you 
indexing the poverty line takes place automatically, and whether you fall below the poverty line is also something that, that is just determined, predetermined for you, and it takes decisions away from the government. And the third one has to do with restricting agendas to make commitments credible. Um, one example is earmarking, right? when, when you are essentially saying um, what will happen, what will take place with these funds, for example, uh, will be predetermined. There's no way around it. And, and we can think of, you know, in the context of taxation, um, diligence requirements or reporting requirements, we often have provisions that require a committee, an oversight committee, perhaps members of civil society, perhaps members of uh, different government agencies and civil society, mixed committees. But the idea is to monitor how governments spend um, taxes. The second one, sunset provisions. Uh, in this case, it has to do with um, a provision of a tax. The tax is set to expire in a fixed period of time. So let's say uh, we have a provision for three years. We adopt a tax. At the end of those three years, the tax expires automatically. And then Congress, the legislature, whoever, needs to come back together and decide to re-adopt this tax. So, these are driving the three main hypotheses that I'm presenting here. And, and the three hypotheses are related to each of these different mechanisms for taxation. The first one has to do with an oversight mechanism. And that just uh, when you include an oversight mechanism, you make it known to potential taxpayers that this will just naturally increase support for that particular tax. The second has to do with the sunset provision, same thing, that if you include a sunset provision, you will get greater support for the tax. And the third one with earmarking, that whenever you earmark beforehand, people will be more likely to pay for that tax. I think those three are fairly straightforward. We can also think of different conditional effects. That is, we can think of the effect of these provisions as being different depending on certain groups. And we can think of maybe these as features of the fiscal exchange, things that might make the fiscal exchange more complicated. For example, we can think of, of maybe uh, challenges to uh, the, relation, the fiscal relationship between uh, taxpayers and governments. Uh, we can think of trust as an important feature. And there's, there's a literature behind these, these three that I have here that are fairly prominent in the taxation literature. Uh, the one that has to do with trust argues that if trust in government is low, you are a lot less likely to pay taxes. You just do not trust the government to deliver those public services, perhaps, or to do the right thing with the money. Perhaps you think the money, the government will steal this, embezzle this, and so on. The second one has to do with uh, perceptions of the quality of the public good. Again, if we think of taxation in this contractual way in which, well, we're, we're giving uh, our resources to the government, but at the same time, we expect something in return. Uh, this leads to relationships of accountability and so on. Um, arguably, if our perceptions of the public good are low, or we think that the public good provided is not of good quality, we might be uh, less willing or more reluctant to contribute financially. And the, the last one has to do with income. Uh, we can think of low-income groups perhaps as um, being disaffected or disenchanted with uh, government. There's always a claim that the wealthy run the government, that um, you know, often in elections, for example, in the US in the current context, um, messages that have to do with taxing the wealthy 
are gain a lot of traction among certain sectors of society. So this is another hypothesis. Um, I have three hypotheses that have to do with these conditional effects. And the idea for the first one is that um, these design features will be least effective uh, in generating support for increased taxation among those who mistrust the government, um, among those who have a, a perception of the public good as being of poor quality, and that it might least affect um, the wealthiest sectors in the sense that the wealthy might have you know, these provisions, maybe the wealthy, now with the Panama Papers, in the context of the Panama Papers, the, the, the wealthy might say, well, this tax reform, whatever, it won't affect me whatsoever. Let me tell you a little bit about the experiment. Shouldn't that make them more likely to just be likely to say that they support the taxation because at the end of the day, they're not going to have to pay it? They can escape it, so sure, yeah. Yeah, so I, I get. I, we expect this, I think you should expect a conditional effect on income, but it's the opposite. The opposite effect. I, I, think, I think we could also, you know, the way you say it makes perfect sense to me. So I guess I, I will so remain. We, we yeah. hypothesize an effect of income and we're agnostic about the direction. Right, exactly. So uh, I had thought about it the other way, but I think the way you're presenting it makes perfect sense as well. Um, so just to just to be clear, that the um, that for the wealthy, it it wouldn't matter because they're not going to be. Yeah, so they'll say yes. They'll say sure, whatever reform is fine, uh, we'll adopt it. And I had in mind the opposite, which was well, the wealthy will find ways. Um, but I think we're we're generally thinking about the same thing. Okay, so in the case of the experiment. I conducted a nationally representative survey in Mexico. Uh, this was at the end of 2013, early 2014. Uh, the survey was conducted face-to-face, -face, so enumerators would go to people's homes. I hired uh, a polling firm, and they found 1,300 respondents. This was an experiment, so different uh, respondents were assigned randomly to different treatments, to different groups. There was a control group, and then three treatments, one uh, according to each of the three main uh, hypotheses that I presented, having to do with the, the three main design features of the tax. Um, the reason why I chose Mexico, well, there are several reasons. Um, the, the main one, really, is that Mexico is one of the countries that needs the most help in increasing its, its fiscal intake. And what this chart shows is the, the x-axis shows a GDP per capita in, in logarithmic terms. And this, the y-axis is tax revenue as a share of GDP. And normally, what we see here is this relationship that as um, level of income increases, we should also expect to see greater um, fiscal intake, a greater share of fiscal revenue as a proportion of GDP. And we can think of this line as the expected value given different levels of development. And we can expect, we can, Mexico's right here, we can think of the gap between the line and the, the diamond represented Mexico as the, the gap between what we should expect for that level of development. So, you know, Mexico clearly 
is not one of the countries that collects the least, although it's, it's getting pretty close. Uh, but even, even that's not what matters, I think it's just what matters for its level of development. It's certainly the country or among the countries that collects the least as a proportion of GDP. So Mexico needs quite a bit of help in this regard. Um, this is one of the reasons why I chose this. And as you will see, for the experiment, I also needed a public good to ground some of the experimental treatments, or all of the experimental treatments. I chose public safety as a public good because first, it, it, it's uh, the main public concern in Mexico and in most parts of Latin America right now, public safety. It's an important public good. In the hierarchy of public goods, I think people might disagree uh, ideologically whether the government should be involved in providing health care and education. We could, some people might think yes, other people might think not. But I think public safety is also a good that most people will agree that governments are in the business of providing. Now this is, this is the, the survey was conducted in Spanish, of course, but this is, uh, I'm showing here the baseline condition. Um, people were asked, basically they were, they were told, you may have heard discussions about public safety in Mexico. Some experts suggest increasing spending in public safety, including in policing, the judicial system, crime prevention. One proposal to achieve this is to collect more in taxes. Now with this proposal in mind, to what extent would you support paying more in taxes than you currently do? This is essentially the, the control group. And the first paragraph, everybody get, everybody got. The, the second part is what changes depending on, on the treatment group. These are the different treatment conditions. So with this proposal in mind, to what extent would you support paying more in taxes than you currently do if the first one has to do with a committee of respected civil society members uh, overseeing how the tax revenue is spent? The second one has to do with the new taxes disappearing in three years and Congress being forced to discuss them again. And the third one has to do with the tax revenue being earmarked for public safety. Now, the language there, you know, I don't use earmark. It's, it's a little bit more, hopefully, in, in plain English in this case. But so that anybody, even if you don't understand what earmark means, uh, you would generally get a sense of what's going on. At least that's the hope. These are the main effects for, for these are on average the treatment effects for the three groups. Um, we see that, um, let me just start by saying that on average, that control group support for, you know, when people are asked how, you know, how, how much would you support this, how much would you support paying more in taxes than you currently do for the, given this, 17% um, of the public was willing to pay more in taxes. So I guess this can be low or high depending on how we think of it. If we compare it to the 3% of the population in the US or the 4% of the population in Mexico that we say, well, are, are generally thinking that we should pay more in taxes, maybe 17% compared to four, it doesn't sound too bad, but 17% but is not gonna pass any tax reform, right? Um, so think of these effects as adding to 17 points. So it, for the treatment that had to do with monitoring how the government spent the money, we would go from, from 17 to 23. Uh, sunset provision, 17 to 24. Earmarking, 17 to 24 as well. Um, you know, in, in relative terms, if we think of you know, six points out of 17, then we can think of 38%, 40% increase. Uh, but again, I, I don't think this is gonna pass any 
tax reform. And I don't think it's going to change people's perceptions that taxes are just not something that they want to do. Uh, yes? Yeah, the, the lines represent 95% confidence intervals. In, in this case, for, for average treatment effects, no line crosses zero. Um, although, you know, as you'll see in a second, the, it's a little underpowered in, in some cases, especially the, the well, you'll see, you'll see. In, in some cases, it does touch zero barely. Uh, but let me go over some of the conditional effects. This is for the first um, conditional effect that has to do with trust in government. These are the three treatments, monitoring, sunset, earmark. And essentially, um, what it's showing is that the, the groups that had to do with low trust, um, the effect increased somewhat compared to the high trust groups. This, this is somewhat counterintuitive to me in the sense that I was expecting the people who didn't trust the government were just going to be cynical about this. And regardless of the treatments, if I told you, no, really, the government's going to earmark this money for public safety, they're going to say, yeah, right. Um, I'm sure some people still do. But, but at least on average, what we find is that these people in the low trust category uh, tended to, to show higher um, willingness to pay more in taxes. The monitoring group, and you'll see this across conditional effects, is, is the one that ends up always being I don't know if underpowered or just the, the confidence intervals uh, tend to cross zero. Uh, for the other two, for low trust and earmark, um, sometimes they barely touch zeros in this case. So this one does cross zero barely. Uh, and in this, one, in this case, for earmarking, it doesn't. Um, but the effect three to nine, you know, one can think of it as, as a matter of power in a way. Yes, that's correct. So the, the Who yeah. are the low trust people? Because it could mm. be that the high trust people are just, I think about places that I study, which are less developed than Mexico, and it tends to be, you know, less educated people. You know, they might just say, yeah, yeah, I trust the government's great. But the low trust people, those are, the, those are actually the critical people. They're critical in the sense of they actually look at the nature of the intervention. So when you tell them, you know, there's going to be some oversight or something like that, that in fact they are likely to be responsive to it because their low trust means something. You know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so I mean, I think... It's counterintuitive. Yeah, I, th I think your, your question is a really good one in that we should think of what other characteristics these people are sharing, whether it has to do with education, whether it has to do with socioeconomic background, and so on. What, the way that I constructed these, I had 1,300 observations, and then we have four treatments. And then for each treatment, I'm splitting them. So the way that I decided to split them was um, for I, I, in the case of, of low trust and high trust, um, people were asked the extent to which they trusted the government. And they were giving four options. You know. A lot, a little, uh, not much, or, or you know, it's, it's, it, do you agree or disagree with the statement, I trust the government? And then those who agreed somewhat or, or conservatively uh, were in the high trust category. Those who did not uh, were in the low trust category. Um, in this case, the low trust group is smaller. As Tarek pointed out, the confidence intervals are greater. I, I do not know. I, I do not know at the end of the day 
I haven't decomposed the low trust to say, you know, they're, they're more educated, less educated, they're rural or urban. Uh, so I'll definitely look into that. Uh, I do, you know, so in Mexico, less than a third. Um, I don't know if I have that. I, I do have whether they sympathize with any political party, and I have a measure of ideology. So, so I could probably use, you know, um, do, do you have any hunches as to whether more conservative or more liberal might? Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think, I mean, I think public safety has been politicized. Um, so is the case that you're making that then, given that it's politicized, then I guess ideology or partisanship would play an important role. And if you support the pre, or the incumbent in this case, the pre, um, you would be maybe more likely to trust the government. It's, it, it's very possible, right? So, I mean, you, in the, the randomization checks, the treatments are balanced with respect to um, ideology, with respect to you know gender and and. In terms of trust. So so right so there would be they're balanced in trust yes no uh, conservative liberal but they're not necessarily balanced when you interact with different treatments for sure yeah. Yeah, so so I did not because I think people have a hard time, um, you know, knowing at the end of the day, in terms of public safety, what's responsibility of the municipal police, the state police, and the federal police, and it's just perceptions of government. So I didn't ask them perceptions of local government. I didn't ask them perceptions of federal government. I think that might be the case in the U.S. perhaps. I'm just not, I, I really don't think that's the case in Mexico. I think people, you know, public safety, people tend to think the federal government is, is to blame for everything to begin with. Um, no, no, no. So I guess the answer is no. The second, I'm giving you the reason why I don't. And the third is uh, you, it, 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 with randomized in the four treatment and the three treatments and control group, this shouldn't be an issue. Um, you know, with with thirteen hundred observations, there's only so much you can do, and I, I just didn't think honestly that that was a major. So yeah, so the, I don't know the answer to that. My answer is it shouldn't matter for these purposes, but I think it's an interesting question. Absolutely, uh, in the Mexican case. You know, taxes, most taxes are collected by the federal government and then distributed down to the, the different levels of government. And public safety is responsibility of, of the three levels. And then each level just has a very different competence. But that's not something that the average person understands at the end of the day. Um, you know, you see this, the state police with the municipal police and the federal police uh, on the streets. Uh, sometimes you see a, a police car from one, sometimes from the other, right? Anyway, let me let me uh, move on quickly to the other two um, the other two effects. So this one has to do with perceptions of the public good. Um, I asked specifically about their community whether they they felt 
you know, to what extent do you consider your community to be very safe, somewhat safe, not safe, and not safe at all? Um, so here it, it, we see again the cons this one is consistent with expectations. You would expect people that thought the government was already providing some quality public good to say, okay, I'm, I'm going to contribute more. Um, so the treatment seems to be more effective in, in that case. And then for the last one having to do with income, this is self-reported income. So it's, you know, we need to take this at face value. What I did is that I um, split the sample uh, at the median and then above the median, I consider higher income and then below the median, low income. And we see that those with low levels of income are the ones that uh, end up f for whom um, the treatments work best or, or work at all. Right? Just a word, you know, experiments, the issue of external validity, ecological validity is always um, a concern. Um, with compliance experiments, there's always the issue of, well, you're asking people whether they would pay what they, are, what they owe the government. And one of, you know, in reality, if you just ask, that's very different to ask than to actually pay. Um, that's always a challenge. So some of the research, what they've done is they do games with actual money and computers or, or, or real money, monopoly money, different versions. In this case, I don't think we need actual money because the way that polling works and that governments pay attention to polls, it is doing essentially what we've done here, which is go out, ask people their opinion. Uh, they will let you know this could be before the, the reform is put together, introduced. This could be after an existing reform is already in Congress, is being discussed. The timing might change a little bit, but in general, it's just going, asking people. People don't have to pay at that point in time. They may support a reform that is actually going to hurt them or, or it's a reform that is actually going to help them. It's not terribly consequential. At the end of the day, what the survey tells the government is what they might use that to act accordingly. Um, one important thing, of course, is that we can only they, these results only, they're specific to public safety, right? I think it's, it would be interesting to see whether the, these findings would hold for um, education or, or the environment or, or other public goods as well. So, you know, just to conclude, um, the effect that I find is six to seven percent points of these different design features move public support for taxation in the context of public safety represents about between 30 to 38 um, percent. And, and we see conditional effect among certain groups that, um, you know, we, we might consider of, of, as groups that are either either cynical or, or you know, low trust, we can think of it as a cynical group. The, the low income sectors, maybe we can think also of them as those that might not have uh, the same ability to influence policy and that might have a voice in this sense. That it, it's interesting that those are the ones that are being moved by these institutional factors. I found that encouraging at least. And, and I, I think it's, it's important to move away again from these structural um, findings of, of how to promote um, the adoption of reforms and moving more into sort of agency and what governments can actually do. Right? So I think it's clear that 17%, again, is not going to, to go from 17 to 24% is not going to pass any reform. But uh, all things considered, I think it's important to look into the mechanisms that will, 
will help you adopt these reforms to minimize the cost for politicians and, and policymakers in, in the public opinion arena and make room. I think this shows that we can still make room for uh, making these reforms more appealing, even in the context of taxation that generates this, this very negative reaction. Um, one, one last thing is, you know, economists will, will be the first to tell you, when you earmark things, you're maybe compromising efficiency, uh, you're introducing other forms of compl complications. So I think there's a trade-off between, um, you have to think about the political aspects that might help you uh, gain more fiscal resources, at the expense of efficiency or other considerations. There are also legal considerations in some countries. You cannot legally earmark taxes, for example, and you have to get creative and so on. But I'm going to leave it there, and I, I want to thank you for your time, and, and I look forward to your comments and questions. Thank you very much, Gustavo, and now we will open the floor for questions. I think this is being recorded, so just to let you know that or transmitting live or something like that, so you know <laughs> something. <laughs> so just so, so just so that you know. So don't yeah. swear. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, Brian. Um, oh, thanks. Uh, this is a great, a great project, and and I, I think it's a really interesting finding. Um, you know, first of all, that these institutional features increase the support and. And, and, the, and particularly this part having to do with people with low and high trust in, in government. You can think, you know, people who don't trust the government to take their money will trust it more if they have these different things in place which seem to, which seem to sort of be tying the hands of politicians, right? And so I think that's, a, that's an interesting finding. And, and as you mentioned, sort of plays into this sort of pros and cons of, of maybe it's not so good to have politicians' hands tied. Maybe it's better for them to have just a bigger budget overall. Maybe that's what Mexico needs. Um, I have a couple questions. I know you already ran this experiment, but maybe you're, you're thinking about doing it again or a bigger version. So I have a couple of questions about the design and, and, and asking about a couple of choices you made. Um, one has to do with the way you talk about oversight. Um, you know, one sort of hypothesis in the literature is that policies are seen to be more legitimate when groups of citizens or certain organized interests were involved in the design of the policy itself. So in Mexico, this was a big deal when NAFTA was, was, was approved, right? That, that all the business chambers took, were part of the negotiating team to get NAFTA passed. And it was seen as sort of this thing that, okay, we, the Mexican citizens will be convinced that this is good for business because these groups were there in the design. So it sounds like in, your, in, in this experiment, you have it laid out a little bit more as uh, these groups are involved in the oversight of how the money will be spent after the tax is already adopted. And I'm wondering if you would expect to see a difference in in the sort of involvement of, of, of citizen actors in the design of the tax versus in the, in the, the spending of the money. Um, my other question sort of about the, the thinking a little bit about external validity has to do with the way citizens typically think about tax proposals. I think typically citizens, to some extent, I'm sure there are surveys and people, and people are asked, do you support higher or lower taxes? And not surprisingly, everyone says I, I prefer that they're lower. But I think most citizens would think about taxes as part of a broader economic policy, broader set of economic policies, right? So um, it's okay with me if my government taxes more 
if it means more jobs are going to be created, if it means more economic growth, if it means more stable macroeconomic indicators, if it means that this is an administration that's going to set up programs that are going to benefit people like me. So it's not just public goods. It's a, it's a, whole, a whole variety of, 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 of economic policies that you may, you may evaluate a politician on, right? And people may be looking at different Mexican parties or, or politicians thinking, which one of these, you know, this person may raise my taxes, but they also do these other things which are good for our economy. So I'm wondering, um, if you thought at all about including this provision to raise taxes as part of a broader uh, variety of economic reforms or economic interventions and how and how people would would perceive i mean you could think about it in the terms of the pacto por mexico right this was a, a set of policies where raising taxes was one of the goals but along with lots of other things including modernizing pemex and doing all these other things and and whether whether your findings can speak to to to, to sort of the way people think about economic policies in, in an electoral context um, should I respond? Yeah. Thank you, Brian, for, for your, for your oh. comments. I have my built-in microphone here. Um, so the first one about legitimacy in the context of oversight, I, I hadn't thought about it like that. And, and I, I was thinking of it as just sort of a cost-benefit calculation that it would be more money that ends up in the right, going to the right purpose or the purpose that people at least had in mind, as opposed to some politician's personal bank account. Um, but I think the legitimacy could very well be contributing to this effect. Right? So just regardless of whether it works or not, the fact that you are involving actors that people consider as, as being, um, you know, that they look up to, or that, that uh, you're involving different sectors of society. And I just say in the treatment, you know, prominent members of civil society. So I, I don't say business groups or, you know. Um, so I, I, could, I could very well see a difference if you say business groups that, that maybe some people might not consider that uh, desirable. Maybe others would. They would say, well, business groups would really look after, you know, maybe I think that's maybe the appeal uh, of some presidential candidates in the current race in the U.S., right? That is, business person must know how to prevent waste in government. Um, so, I, you know, I, I think it could be a different mechanism that could be driving this effect in the context of oversight. What was interesting to me was that, I mean, I don't have the power at the end of the day to distinguish across uh, these three different um, uh, mechanisms, but um, consistently, monitoring oversight seemed to be the one that always fell short of significance. Um, I mean, I'd like to think of it again as a power issue, but it, it could be that monitoring does have a smaller effect on the other day than earmarking and sunset, but, but I don't know. Um, on, on the issue of how this might relate to other arenas and, um, you know, I, I haven't given too much thought about the bundling of the, the Pacto por Mexico, for example, with, with the fiscal reform. But, but one thing that I have, um, that I think was effective in approving the last fiscal reform in Mexico in 2013 had to do with the earmarking in a way. It wasn't a hard earmark, but it was definitely associating in people's minds um, the, um, uh, there was insurance for unemployment and, and social programs, essentially, that the president was making the case would be naturally tied to the fiscal reform. So these funds are going to allow us to do this. And, and I think that is 
very important, very instrumental in getting reforms adopted because, as you said, if you in the abstract think about, do you want to pay more in taxes? Of course not. Uh, do you want more public safety? Of course. Uh, but, but then when you start giving details, then some people might not uh, have the same reaction. So if you tell people something concrete, uh, unemployment insurance for everyone, OK, here you go. Right? Um, I, I hope that sort of answered your questions. OK, thank you. Yeah, over there. Uh, basically, I have uh, two questions. Um, my name is Gustavo, too. <laughs> uh, well, one of them, uh, in your research design, when people were informed about the increase of tax, were they guaranteed that the government would not change the money that was used before to public safety? For instance, because sometimes in the Brazilian experience, for instance, there are many times that new taxation was created. But actually, what uh, happened is that uh, the money that was used in that public policy was changed to another thing, and then just a new tax just remain just remain uh, the same level of increase. So, could you could you counter for, for that? And the second point that I think was a, a, a red a, uh, pointed here is about the, the the how public how the public see the. Uh, attribution, the political attribution of each level of state in, in Mexico. Because I was just uh, wondering here, as it was kept very open, public safety can be from, uh, well, border security to local issues. And many people thought that, well, it's so open, so open that this money will probably not finish at being spent on, on public safety. And so maybe your results actually they show that as there is no strong political attribution of guarantee that that money will be your market to a specific point, maybe that the main explanation for your law results. In what do I would like you to comment on both things. Yeah, um, let, me, let me start with uh, the first one about earmarking and sort of the notion that at the end of the day, um, resources are fungible, right? So even if you say, I'm gonna earmark all of this money for public safety, you're freeing up all of those other resources that could have gone for public safety, and, and then you end up with uh, fungible resources. So it's, it could be a soft earmark. Um, I've given this some thought, and I, it's interesting to me that um, you know, some people might be aware of that, and some people might not be aware of that. Some people might hear earmark and really think that the government is going to do that. And this is why the, the trust um, treatment I think it's, or, or the conditional effect on trust, I think is interesting. Because people who might not, you would think that those that trust the government least, if they are aware of these fungibility issues, would say, I just don't trust that you're going to really uh, earmark th these funds. You can say so. You can even sign it somewhere. But I know that you're not. Um, so that the funds ultimately be earmarked or not it does, should not matter when you're asking people about their views. But I do think that potentially we could, I mean, the effect, if you only surveyed people that were aware of this issue, maybe you would get a different effect. Um, so I, I think that's right. And the other one um, about the, 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 I think it's related to Yanida's question about sort of these different levels of, of government and, and public safety, right? Um, you know, 
there were there were a lot of things that I would have liked to do with a lot of observations, and I would have liked to ask specifically not just about more taxes, but well, more, what about income taxes, or what about uh, you know value-added taxes, uh, uh, different types. It, I thought I thought it would be best just to ask generally about the government and generally about public safety. And in the treatment uh, that everybody got in the question, I, I mentioned you know policing, I mentioned uh, courts, and I mentioned um, the third element had to do with with uh, prisons, I believe. So just different aspects of the criminal justice system. Um, but but I, I wouldn't be able to tell which one people might find more compelling or so that really just had to do with the limitations of resources at the end of the day. Yeah. Hi, I really uh, enjoyed the paper and just trying to think how to understand the results a little more um, deeply. I guess one question I had is, I don't know if you're familiar with Romero, Diego Cayeros, and Magaloni had a survey experiment on crime victimization, how people evaluated um, a previous administration's security policy driven that. I'm wondering if if you can sort of combine those results with yours. I don't know if you had any questions about crime victimization or how that might affect trust or other responses that you had um, and, and, and sort of help us understand these results. And the other question I had was just getting back to how do people understand the prompts? I believe your results, but uh, I mean, I'm, I can imagine that given that the Army and the federal police are much more trusted in Mexico than the local police for understandable reasons that when they talked, when they responded and um, then were favorable to um, increasing taxes, they probably thought it was going to the more trusted sources, but I don't know if you have any sort of qualitative evidence to support that. Or um, there's also this large U.S. literature um, about the Merit Initiative and sort of criticizing early spending of it on equipment and promoting sort of a, a shift more towards um, sort of capacity building. I don't know if there's a similar debate. I imagine that sort of debate is not happening in my metro. I haven't seen any evidence of it, but so sort of what is the spending going towards? What would someone think about when they, when they hear their spending might increase? Thank you. Thank you for your, your comments and questions. Um, I, I read recently, um, if I'm thinking about the same one, so the, the Romero Magaloni and Diaz Calleros' piece has to do with uh, approval. Is this the one about presidential approval and public safety? And it's. Yeah, so the way I would connect this would be with the issue of quality of the public good, right? So ultimately, victimization would, I would assume, affect your perceptions of the public good, in this case, public safety. And it sounds like they're consistent in the sense that if you've been a victim of the crime, you are, uh, it sounds, less likely to support right, the, the government's policy. And in this case, if, you've, if you think uh, poorly of public safety, whether you've been victim of a crime or not, it sounds like you would also be less likely to contribute uh, fiscally to sort of the, the public enterprise. And so that's how I would connect the two. My blessing. Um, the last one. Um, you know, some people might have a higher, I mean, I think surveys show that people have a higher regard for the military, that they consider it less corrupt, that they, at least in Mexico, that they think of, of the military as, as being more organized and really um, compared to the municipal police and police more generally. So I, I do not know when, what people specifically think about when they're asked about trust in government. Um, it could be, you know, they could be thinking about their mayor, they could be thinking about the president, they could be thinking about their latest interaction with 
the police, the local policeman, or their latest interaction of the checkpoint, the military checkpoint. So I, you know, it's it's unfortunate that I don't think this research design allows us to to really get at that. Um, you know, the, the, I think that the notion behind the the random assignment to treatment is that you would get across groups uh, comparable proportions of people in these different right yeah so I, I don't have a you know a more nuanced answer to that but thank you I have a question so a um, couple of, of comments <clears throat> I think um, one issue you may want to say um, is that at the time you were doing the experiment there wasn't any particular scandal related to so crime so that it's not, I mean, the responses are not driven by that or that there wasn't any. Um, second, I was wondering whether you're looking at variation within the country, whether in some areas people are more likely to support vis-a-vis -vis others, given the sort of the spatial di uh, disparity in the incidence of crime. So whether you're, you're thinking that some areas people may be more likely than others in, in, in supporting sort of taxation or not whether that's something you're looking at. And then, um, so if, I, if you are sort of giving kind of recommendations for policymakers and your recommendations are that these features, you know, generate more support for taxes, but there doesn't seem, I mean, I may be wrong, but there didn't seem to be a lot of variation across the features. So all the features seem to be something that people are likely to support. So I wonder whether it's that people, when they are asked about any particular sort of variation in the tax, then they are more likely to accept it. So, so whether they are consulted about something that they may prefer. So is it about the feature, or is it about that they are asked something about the tax more in detail, and that's what you're tapping into? Um. So I wonder whether the recommendation is ask people about what, you know, particular features or discuss the technical details details of the tax rather than saying you know we're increasing a tax and we're funding that but we're increasing a tax with which has these particular features that are favorable for making it more likely that you know it will be used correctly or it will be supervised because that's what the features are saying that actually the money is going to be better employed yeah so thank you so much for your questions i i think these are all good i i think i have answers for some of them uh you know, I, I haven't given some thought to whether there were any particular scandals that, that were driving the, the agenda. That's something I, I should definitely look into. Uh, in terms of the variation across areas, um, I haven't done this, but I, I think one dimension of variation one can think of is, is victimization, right? So one could look into actual, let's say, homicide rates or, or victimization by, by municipality and sort of, or, or by state, and then compare where there was just group responders based on high victimization, low victimization, or living in a, in a high homicide rate place or low homicide rate place, and then uh, look at conditional effects that way. Um, if we would have any reason to believe maybe that, you know, the north versus the south or rural versus urban as well. Uh, so I, I have not done that. Um, the, one, the one about, you know, whether the, the effects are similar across the three main treatments. Is it an effect just you're giving somebody a treatment and then therefore you're getting this? Uh, I've, I've given this a bit of thought because I, 
you know, when you see that the treatments are similar or the effects are similar across treatments, uh, this is something that comes to mind. I, I, I don't have a way to answer that question definitively, but what I, I think is, is indicative perhaps that um, it might not be the details of the, you know, it's tricky because in a way what I'm trying to do is precisely provide people details about how the tax is going to take shape um, and the control group doesn't have that. So in my mind, the treatments are very subtle. You know, it's a person that goes to your house and asks you to, you know, th this is embedded in a larger omnibus survey. Uh, maybe some people are checking out, you know, so who knows? But the, the, the part of the treatment is very subtle, generally brief, not, I think the, some of the questions here have alluded to how vague many of these things are, whether it's the government, whether it's public safety. In a way, these treatments are begging for specifics, and, and there aren't uh, many. So I, I don't have a way of answering the question, really, given the design. I think it's an important concern. But uh, the, how subtle the treatments are, in a way, uh, give me at least some, some sense that uh, it might not be just that you're telling people additional information. If anything, you know, people, I think, when they learn more about attacks, they might just start ranting against the government. Um, there, there's an open-ended question that, I, that is included in the survey that I just haven't gotten a chance to, to analyze um, that might provide some more information about that. Thank you so much for your presentation. Um, I'm basically trying to figure out what type of uh, taxes you were proposing, whether it were personal taxes, income taxes, property taxes, sale taxes, or you know, liquor taxes, or what have you. Uh, because I'm, I'm concerned somehow. I mean, given what's happening here nationally uh, with Trump as a candidate for the presidency and all of that stuff, basically saying that if he's elected, he's going to, besides the wall that Mexico needs to pay for, uh, he's going to confiscate you know, all the money that's going to go back to Mexico to support the families out there. Now, my concern is about property taxes. I don't know if you have followed you know, the rule and order, uh, or the law and order system in the United States, and you could, by the laws here, lose a house that is two, three hundred thousand dollars for five hundred dollars of taxes. Uh, they publish in different states. You happen to not to be around. They take you into court, and basically, if you happen not to be there, uh, you lose the house. And usually, the elites are the ones who end up with the house. Uh, trust me, I have been through that process several times. And and in in looking at that. With this due process of law here, I am just concerned that you know uh, someone says something about the elites, the elite-driven taxes and all that stuff, that some of these people, mothers with children and grandparents and things like that, if something happens here to cut the money back to Mexico, are going to end up building houses with the money from here and then being taken back by the elites out there because people cannot really afford to pay the taxes there. So that's kind of like if you have actually evaluated the system here to see if you can compare it to the system in Mexico and see how the policies that can be implemented there are going to impact the real people in Mexico. Thank you.
Yeah, thank you for, for your question. I think that your point is very well taken. Um, you know, I, I, I don't really make a, a case for any particular tax in this sense. And I think it's, it's something definitely worth evaluating uh, if these proposals were adopted, let's say. Um, in the Mexican case and in most of Latin America, um, indirect taxes, consumption taxes have become the norm and it, for different reasons. In part is because they're easier to administer, easier to collect, um, maybe less distortive. Um, but if, if I were to look for an area to expand taxation in Latin America and in particular in Mexico, uh, I think there's a lot of room for income tax, sort of you know, a progressive uh, income tax system. I think there's quite a bit of room in terms of um, taxes on, on dividends and, and equity and these capital gains, right? Um, so, you know, I, I, I think it would definitely have to be determined given different contexts, which type of tax would make sense. In the Mexican context, I think there's a lot of room for progressive personal income taxes to be expanded. Um, and, and I think, Candelaria, I don't know if, if I responded part of your last question in terms of, I think you were alluding to these three treatments. And, and one thing that we also don't know from this is if you combine them, what happens? Do you, give, do you get twice the effect or, or maybe no, you still get just one? So I guess that would have been a good way to, I guess if, if I get to run this experiment again at some point in the future, if I combine them and if I'm still getting the same effect, and maybe I add something, you know, I add some treatment that has very little to do with any of this and I'm still getting six or seven points, then, you know, that would definitely cast doubt on the findings. But, but at least um, I think it would be interesting to vary um, the type of tax, maybe different rates, and, and maybe combining treatments to see whether it gives you more leverage and maybe going from 17 to, to 27 or 30. I'm not aware of this. I part of the motivation of this project had to do with some research that I conducted in Colombia that had to do with um, there was a wealth tax adopted in 2002 that was earmarked for security purposes to, to pay for uh, the war against the guerrillas and the paramilitaries and so on. So that was a tax, it was a wealth tax, it was, the, it was the wealthiest Colombians in theory at least were the ones that were paying this tax. And what I found is that there were different features of the, of the tax that emerged out of the negotiations between the government and the elites that made elites more likely to pay this tax or at least to accept the adoption of this tax. I don't want to be naive and think that now all of the elites are paying it, but at least in terms politically for the adoption of this tax, um, earmarking the funds for security purposes was an important one, even though in Colombia, earmarking for anything other than, than um, social programs is prohibited by the constitution. So this was a soft earmark. It wasn't legally earmarked, but at least for all practical purposes it was. That, was a, that played a main factor. Another was sort of this 
getting civil society involved. In that case, it was members of, uh, sort of presidents of universities and members of the business community. Um, and the other important factor is precisely you have a sunset provision that at the end of three years, then this tax would, would sunset and then you would have to discuss it again. So I found that in the context of elite taxation in Colombia for security purposes, you know, one could always argue that these are different contexts. You know, Mexicans would always say, oh, but Colombia is different. Our public safety problems are very different. But in any case, that's the motivation. Um, so yeah, this is really, this was really great. And I'm gonna, my question is a little bit, um, uh, since I snuck in my question during the presentation, I wanted to ask um, if you could mind, it's a little bit speculative, but I wanted to see your take on what this would look like in terms of other types of policies, policy areas, because I couldn't help but think about this in the context of sort of Suzanne Mettler's work, right? Sort of like that do, there's all these types of policies that governments are adopting that people don't know are adopted by the government. Um, so I wonder it, how, you know, I think public, public security, despite like, you know, the huge numbers of private security out there, it's something that people already know is done by the government. So I was wondering if you sort of would mind thinking about, thinking out loud about what, what it might look like for other policy areas where maybe citizens don't know uh, the extent of government involvement and if you think that would vary their support for, for taxation if they're not even aware that it's really something that the government is so involved in. Yeah, thank you. Um, I've done a little bit of work connecting sort of this work in the submerged state, Suzanne Mettler's uh, work and others' work on, on the submerged state, this notion that there are so many benefits people get from the state, but some of them we are aware of and others we might not be as aware of. Maybe we see a policeman or policewoman on the street, but maybe we are getting a, a break on our taxes because of, of our mortgage payments. And people don't associate that as a benefit, as a state benefit. And then there are others, maybe food stamps, that people don't even know who's giving it to them, right? They're collecting food stamps and they're not aware that it's a, a government benefit. Um, I've, I've done a little bit of work in this context, I think, connecting taxation with wars. So not public safety, but security. And uh, in, in an experiment, uh, my co-author, Sarah Krebs and myself, we, would, we asked uh, people, um, whether they would support a war in the United States and in the United, in the United Kingdom. So we did it in two places. And the idea is that we would ask, we would present a scenario in which the war was paid for through taxes and then a scenario in which the war was paid for through the way that it is right now, through debt and the regular budget. So um, what we find is that support for the war um, this is, this is very straightforward, I think. Support for the war is lower when taxes are part of the mix. Now, taxes used to be part of, of how we paid for wars up until Vietnam. And most uh, wars in the United States had a war tax. Not all of them. The Mexican-American War, for example, didn't have one. But up until Vietnam, we used to have war taxes. But since, we haven't. And, and some of the... The motivation for this is there's a literature that speaks to the accountability mechanisms that democracies are supposed to have in going to war. And that the, the public is, in a way, both aware 
of the cost of the war, and this is something that makes the public maybe more reluctant to go to war, reluctant to let these wars last forever, uh, maybe more attentive to how the war is fought and so on. And uh, the upshot is that if we are financing these wars through mostly debt, they're beyond the public's eye. And if we know that support for war is much greater in, in the absence of attacks, the implication is that we, we call this paper borrowing support for war. Right? So we're, we're borrowing money to pay for the war, and at the same time, we're making these wars less unpopular. So that is, I think, a, um, at least an expansion or an application of this literature. In the case of public safety, it's tricky because I, I one of the reasons why I like public safety is because it's, it's visible. It's something that people tend to, um, to be aware of, with, whether, it, whether they're happy with it or not. And one, maybe one connection with this submerged state is this inability to distinguish whether it's local, state, or, or federal. And of course, this changes. Many countries are not federal systems, and it may be more straightforward. In a place like Colombia, for example, you have the Ministry of Defense. And within the Ministry of Defense, inside, you have the national police. So then when people think about security, do they think about the military? Do they think about the civilian law enforcement agencies? Uh, so it's, it's tricky. Um, so that I'll, I'll stop there. Thank you for your question. Thank you so much. Thank you for, for being here. Thank you for your questions and comments.